Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Grown-Ups Forum. I'm Denise Michaud, Chair of the Grown-Ups Forum and your host for today. I want to also extend a warm welcome to our virtual audience. Our program is called Flourishing in a New Normal. I am very privileged to introduce our distinguished speaker, Stephen Campbell. Stephen is an author, professor, and professional speaker. He holds workshops around the world, helping people become the person they've always wanted to be using the science of cognitive psychology. His latest book is called Making Your Mind Magnificent. So we'll get together towards the end of the program for Q&A. And I also just want to remind the viewers that they can share questions to Steve in the comments area. Welcome, Stephen. Great. Well, thank you so much. This is going to be an amazing time. We're in a, we're in such something that we never even thought of. So change is not coming. It's here. And it's not only around the world. It is right next door. And what we are now calling the new normal, the world is changing and calling it the same thing. What I want to share with you, first of all, is something that is going to help you enjoy this time. As I give this presentation, people begin getting panicked because they want to write everything down and all the slides. And all this. I'm going to save you the problem with all that. I have already written down every word I'm going to say tonight. and put the slides on the right and the words are on the left, and I put them on a PDF. So if you would like this presentation at the very end, along with some wonderful links, and some wonderful books, simply send me your email address, and I've got my email address at the very, very end, and I'll send it to you. That way you can sit back, relax, enjoy, and don't worry about getting everything down, okay? Okay, because I want this to be a really, really fun time with you. So what will the new normal bring? Well, the new normal bring is going to bring around four different things. Number one, it's going to increase working at our home. And that's already happening. It's also going to increase online everything. I used to say shopping, but it's going to increase online everything that you could possibly imagine. It's also going to begin visual, virtual correspondence. But more than that, and this is what we're going to talk about tonight, it's going to enable us to respond to this positively. This is a scary time. And I'm going to share with you some characteristics of the brain that will enable us to not only respond to this, but to flourish in it. So hold on to your seats, because here we go. So here's some comforting news about the brain. Everything begins with how you think. Everything begins with the brain. Let me, let me illustrate for you. Whenever I go across the Golden Gate Bridge, I am absolutely astounded at what I see. But the Golden Gate Bridge did not begin with a plan. It began in somebody's mind. In this case, it was in the mind of a gentleman who was um, a writer for the San Francisco Bulletin. It began as his mind and started from that. So everything starts with how we think. Now, why is that so exciting? Because there are three wonderful characteristics of your brain. And we're going to look at all three. So we'll look at just the first one now and then go on from there. Okay? Number one, I'll say this really slowly so you don't miss it. Your brain believes everything you tell it without question. That's scary. 
And that's wonderful. The scary part is when you say, this is really hard. You know what your brain says to that? Your brain says, oh, okay, you're right. It really is hard. And then looks for ways to make it hard. That's the scary part. But there's a wonderful part. When you say, this is going to be a challenge, but it's going to be exciting. The brain says, oh, okay. And then it becomes obsessed with finding ways to make it exciting for you. Now, is what you're saying true? Your brain doesn't even care. So let's start with that. While I'm talking to you right now, you're talking to yourself thousands of times faster. How do I know? Well, the first time I saw Yosemite when I was eight years old, I could not possibly put into words what I was seeing and what I was feeling. So you're talking to yourself thousands of times because we talk to ourselves in words, but mainly we talk to ourselves in pictures and feelings. So when I think of Mary, my wife, I don't think of her with words. I think of how I feel about her and how pretty she's become to me in the 50 years we've been married. But here's the important point. Your brain doesn't care whether what you're saying is true or not. Now, one of the best books I've ever read on this is Dr. V.S. Ramachandran's Phantoms in the Brain. Phantoms refer to phantom limbs that have been amputated. And a patient will go into a doctor's office, he'll say, you got to help me, I can't do a thing with my arm. And the doctor may say, well, that could be because I cut off that arm six months ago. And the patient says, well, you didn't tell my brain that. My brain still thinks it's there. My brain wants to pick things up with it. And sometimes it gets itchy and achy. And so, so, so my arm, as far as my brain is concerned, is right there. So the brain doesn't care whether what you're saying is true or not. But the person that I want to look at most this evening is the work of Dr. Albert Ellis on the Columbia University, who's one of the originators of cognitive behavioral therapy or cognitive psychology. What he suggested and I'll say this really slowly so you get it. What he suggested is that everything we can do today is primarily based on what we say to ourselves about ourselves today. Now notice I'm emphasizing the word today. When he said this, psychology had a conniption fit. They said, no, 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 the way you are today is because of unresolved childhood conflicts and how you were raised. Of course, that was Freudianism. That was followed by behaviorism. Behaviorism is Dr. Skinner who said, no, no, it's all cause and effect. That was followed by a group that said, no, it's all in your genes, and that's not right because it's we're far more than just what our genes say. Another group said it's in our environment, our, our birth order, our mom, our dad, our sister, brother. And Dr. Ellis came back and he said, you know what? I think they're all correct. How did they all be correct? Because when you say it, and lock onto it, your brain's job is to make it correct. You decide. Wow. So let me give you a story. For the first 42 years of my life, I said to myself, I'm really dumb in math. And guess what? I was. Couldn't do numbers, freaked out with numbers. I just, I, I just couldn't do numbers. And so I, said that, and I believed it, and I was. And then when I was 42, I discovered computers and got my graduate degree in computer science, began teaching computer courses at various universities. And one day, the dean came to me at this one college, and he said, one of our math professors just quit. 
So you are our new math professor. <gasps> Wait a minute, I, I can't. I can't do numbers. He said, you want a job? Learn. There's the book. You're teaching math next semester. Well, I needed the job, so I picked up all, I went to the library, picked up all the books I could on pre-based on, on cognitive psychology and how we learn. And I began teaching my curriculum based on how our brain learns. And students began saying, oh, you're such a good math teacher. And the dean came to me and said, all the students saying, I will only take math if Mr. Campbell is my professor. And do you know what I began doing? I began listening to what students had been saying about me rather than what I had been saying to myself for 42 years. And when I did that, what did my brain say? Okay, is it true? Don't care. All I care is what you tell me. And the more I taught math, the better I got at it, and the more fun it was, and I ended up writing two college textbooks on what do you think? Computer software and math. So here's the point. If, ready, everything we can do today is primarily based on what we say to ourselves about ourselves today, we can change what we are saying to ourselves about ourselves when? Right now. And what will your brain say? Okay. Is it true? Don't care. All I care about is what you tell me. Can you see where we're going on this? Wait till we get there. Wow. Now, before we go on, I always hear, well, Steve, you've got to realize I'm much older. I'm stuck in my ways. This is the way I think. So let's talk about how much the brain can really, really learn. This is our daughter, Sarah, and this is her brain, of course, without the labels. And this is what her brain looked like when she was about three years old. She was raised in Runner Park. She knew nothing about a city. So this is what her brain looked like in terms of a city, absolutely nothing. Mary said to me, we got <coughs> we got you, Sarah, about the city. So I said, okay. So I read her a book. Now, here's how your brain learns. I read her the book. The brain recorded that book as a prefrontal cortex in the prefrontal cortex as a neural cluster. I read her another book. The brain recorded that as a neural cluster. Then we introduced her to some friends in San Francisco and Oakland. And then we showed her some buildings and some streets and some parks and some lights and some cars. And the brain's recording all the stuff during the day. When Sarah went to sleep that night, and this is what your brain does when you go to sleep at night, your brain says, oh, great, now leave me alone for the next eight hours. I need to make sense out of all the stuff that you gave me during the day. So here's what it does. It looks at all the things that you learned, and it tries to find relationships. It tries to find connections. So there's a book about a city. There's another book. There's no connection, but there should be, so the brain creates one axons, dendrites, synaptic clefts, etc. There's another, and now what you're watching is you're watching your brain learn. This is what your brain does when you're asleep. In fact, we now know <coughs> that your brain is more active when you're asleep than when you're awake. And then over time, what happens is your brain develops what's called a pattern of a city. <coughs> And now Sarah will never, ever forget what a city is. It's got people, lights, cars. Now, 
Here's the question. How many patterns can your brain carry? Let's ask that a different way. How much can you still learn and grow and change? Well, the patterns are based on the connections. The connections are based on the number of brain cells that you have, which is around 100 billion. Each of those brain cells in your brain is connected to an average of 10,000 other cells. And that's on a multiple, that's a power. So the number of connections which the brain can carry, which determines how many patterns the brain can carry, is 100 billion to the power of 10,000. That's a big number. That's 100 billion times 100 billion, 10,000 times. Here's a picture. <coughs> Here's a picture of prefrontal cortex tissue. Can you see the clusters? That might be a book. That might be lice. That might be skyscrapers. There's the connections here. Dr. Ramachandra says you take a speck of brain the size of a grain of sand. You got 100,000 neurons, 2 million axons, 1 billion synapses. What's well, even more amazing is your brain takes up only about 2% of your body weight. That 2% uses up 20% of your energy. It also uses up 20% of your air, 25% of your blood, 30% of your water, and 40% of nutrients all go to your brain. So here's a slide that I want you to remember, and I'll say it really slowly. Well, before we get that, let's get this. Let's talk about how many patterns your brain will carry. And to do this, I want you to read this with me out loud. Let's do it together so I'll help you, okay? Let's start at the bottom, start at the top, we'll go down to the bottom. Here we go. The phenomenal power of the human mind. Can you read this? I couldn't believe that I could actually understand what I was reading. According to research at Cambridge University, it doesn't matter in what order the letters of a word are. The only important thing is that the first and last letter be in the right place. The rest can be a total mess, and you can still read it without a problem. This is because the human mind does not read every letter by itself, but the word as a pattern. Amazing, huh? Yeah, and I always thought spelling was important. Give yourself a hand. Now, there are four misspelled, misspelled words in that paragraph. Two of them are on the bottom line. What are they? Important. What's the other one? Thought. There's no G. Okay. Go up three lines. There's the one up three lines. What's that? Can you see it? Because. There's no U. Go up one more line. What do you see? Problem, no L. Wow. Read this. Go ahead. This message serves to prove how your mind can do amazing things. In the beginning, it was hard. But now your mind is reading this line automatically without even thinking about it. So listen to these next two slides because they summarize it all. The primary element that holds us back from learning and growing and changing is what we say to ourselves. The primary element that's going to hold us back in the new normal is not the new normal, my dear friends. It's what you say about the new normal. And why is it exciting about that? Because you can replace what you are saying. 
Why don't you use the word change? Because the brain hates change. The brain doesn't want you to change. The brain wants to keep you right where you are, nice and safe. So I never use the word change. I always use the word replace. And we'll look at that more and more and more as we look at this together. Okay? The best way to explain this is to give you an example. So this is our first daughter. She was born on my birthday. That was an exciting thing. She also had rare hair. That was even more exciting. And uh, Mary's mother flew out from Michigan to see her first granddaughter. We were living, or we were living in Southern California at the time. And I was working in hospitals, and Mary called me in the middle of the day, which she never did, and she was absolutely hysterical, crying. And my mother-in-law is a very, very sweet person, and I could not understand what she was saying. So eventually, I just came home. Walked in the living room. There was Mary. She was still crying. Mary's mother was patting her on the shoulder. I'm so sorry, dear. I sat down. What in the world did you tell her? Mary's mother looked at me, and she said, Steve, Abby's eyes are crossed. What? They're crossed. No, they're not. Yes, they are. We went back and forth, forth and back for about three days. Finally, we took to a doctor. And what did the doctor say? Both of them were crossed severely. She had her she had had to have her eyes patched for the next five years after surgery. She only patched her eyes. She also patched her little doll's eyes. And here's what she looks like today. And she's beautiful. In fact, she has a grandson. We're going to spend the next 15 minutes looking at pictures of my grandson. Not really, but you get the point. Okay. Here's the point, though. I am really smart. And Mary is smarter than I am. She runs circles around me. Why could we not see the cross eyes? Because our little girl was perfect. Our little girl was beautiful. We just could not see it. And that's how our brain fools us. It fools us all the time. So people behave and act not according to the truth, but the truth is they perceive it to be. One of my favorite stories is of Cliff Young. Back in 1983, he entered the first Australian marathon, which went from Australia, from Sydney to Melbourne, 885 kilometers, 545 miles. And Cliff Young showed up wearing uh, muck boots and farmer galoshes. And all the reporters ganged up on Cliff. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? He said, well, I spent my life in the outback chasing my 2,000 head of sheep on my 2,000-acre farm. I thought this would be really fun. So he ran against 150 of the top runners in the world. It was a five-day race. He thought it would be fun because he said, I've run sheep for three days. Well, with this kind of story, what do you think happened? Right, Cliff won. But listen to this. He beat them all by a day and a half. How did he do that? Well, when you run a race like this, you run for 18 hours and you sleep for six. Cliff didn't know that. He didn't know you're supposed to sleep. So while all the other races were sleeping, he just kept on running. Now, that is really, really inspirational. My dear friends, I'm not speaking to you tonight to inspire you. Could his inspiration last for maybe three days? 
and then we go back to our old ways. I'm here to help you change the way you think. So let me tell you what happened the next year. The next year had the same race. Cliff Young showed up, could not finish it because he injured himself. Eight runners beat his record. And the year after that, and the year after that, and the year after that, they were asked, how did you practice without sleeping? And they said, easy. First of all, we looked at Cliff Young. If Cliff Young can do it, I can do it. And what did their brain say? Oh, okay. Was it true? Don't care. All I care is what you tell me. You say it, I believe it. So the brain locks on to whatever you lock onto. It has to do with what's called the reticular activating system. Reticular means net light. It starts down in the basal ganglia. And the best way to explain what it does is to give you a story. When I was a little boy, my dad taught me how to ride a bicycle. They took me out to this road. He said, now, before I give you a little push, you see that rock on the road about 50 feet? Yes, Daddy. Don't run into that rock. And I got down on the bike. I locked onto the rock so I would not run into it. Of course, you already know what happened. Bam, right into the rock. Why? Because I locked onto the rock, and that's the only thing I could see. That's how your brain works. It finds a way. Now, big question then. Who decides what's valuable? Your brain locks on to what is valuable. Who decides? You already know the answer. You do. Let me give you an illustration. Can you see the black dot? Can you see the shade around the black dot? Lock your eyes onto the black dot. And watch what happens to the shade. And I'll do it with you. What's happening to the shade? It's fading away. Why? Because you're locking onto that dot, not the shade. That's what we're going to learn how to do at the end of this hour. Okay? Not only that, though, once you lock onto something new, your brain rewires itself so that what you are locking onto not only becomes a mindset, it becomes a part of who you are. Wow. Wow. We really are in control. And I'll show you what I mean. I ended up teaching math at the University of San Francisco. And Susie came to my office after the first day of class, one semester, sat down. She was very shy. She said, Mr. Campbell, I am really glad you're my professor. I said, why is that, Susie? She said, because I've never had gotten anything above a C in math. I'm a C student. And I told her, well, I used to be the same way. So I worked with her. She got an A in the first midterm. And I gave her the test. And she looked at it and she absolutely freaked out. She said, oh, Mr. Campbell, this is a mistake. What do you mean, Susie? She said, I've never gotten above a C in a math test. You must have made a mistake. And I said, I did it, Susie. This is a genuine A. So then she looked at it longer. Then she looked at me, and her face just brightened up. And she said, 
do you know what this means? And of course, I'm really excited. So I sit down next door. I said, of course I do. Susie, you tell me, what does this mean? This means that when I flunk my next test, I can still maintain my C. I said, Sue, just get A in every test. She said, I can't. Why? What was her answer? I'm a C student. So I sat down with her. I said, Sue, answer me this. What would have happened if you had flunked this test? Do you know what she said without a moment's hesitation? Easy, I would have stood like crazy to get A on the next test. I'd have to to maintain my C. I said, Sue, just get an A in every test. She said, I can't. Why? Because I'm a C student. I've always been this way. This is the way I think. This is my weakness. This is my strength. This is how I was raised. This is how old I am. Or, or, or. Do you know what your old life ended, dear reader, dear listener? One second ago. So when did your new life begin? One second ago. Now do the math. 60 seconds per minute, 60 minutes per hour, 24 hours per day. In one 24-hour period, you have 86,400 new opportunities for new life every single day. All you have to do is choose to take them. Wow. Now, what do we do with the new normal? What do we do, in other words, with our feelings? We're going to look at the work of Dr. Martin E.P. Seligman, who is the director of the Center of Positive Psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. What we've learned so far is three, one break, Brain breakthrough. Number one, your brain believes what you tell it without question. Here's the second one. Ready? Here we go. Our feelings about ourselves primarily come from our beliefs. Let me explain. Let's imagine that your name is Mary and my name is Steve and I show up at your house on a Saturday morning with a shovel. We've been friends for years. I say, hi, Mary. Hi, Steve. How are you? Good to see you. I'm going to dig a hole in your backyard. You say, well, that's weird, but okay. So I go to your backyard, start digging the hole. And you're watching me dig the hole. And you begin developing some beliefs. Let me say, Steve, I've been friends for years. I've kids have played together. He knows it's my birthday today. He also knows I love rose, uh, rose bushes. Oh, that's what he's doing. He's planting a, 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 a rose bush in my backyard. That's why he's digging the hole. Oh, Steve, I love you. You're so sweet. Call call your wife. Come over here. We'll have a wonderful birthday party. Okay? That's scenario number one. Scenario number two is that we hate each other. Have for years. And finally, I show up at your front yard with a shovel on a Saturday morning. I say, hi, Mary. Hi, Steve. I'm going to go home in your backyard. So go to your backyard, start digging the hole. This time your beliefs are completely different. Your beliefs are that I'm digging the hole to bury you in it. Now watch this. Same Mary, same Steve, same Saturday morning, same shovel, same backyard, same hole, completely different beliefs, completely different Feelings. 
your feelings about the coronavirus and the new normal is not coming from the new normal. It's coming from what you believe about the new normal. And people say, well, Steve, I'm not really sure what I believe. There's a wonderful handle on that, and that is your self-talk. Look at what you are saying about the new normal. Look at what you are saying about everything that's happening. That will tell you what you're believing. Wow. You see, psychologists say that activating events do not lead to consequential emotions. In other words, A does not lead to C. There's a B in the middle, and the B stands for belief. So let's give you a couple of examples. Here's a belief. I'm older, so I'm going to get sick first. Okay? Or another belief. I feel this and that and this and that because I'm unemployed. Okay? We assume that being older explains how we feel or being unemployed explains how we feel. Rather, and look at this, it's our beliefs about being older that explains how we feel. And it's our beliefs about being unemployed that explains how we feel. And we can replace those beliefs. Is it easy? Of course not, because some of the beliefs we've had our entire lives. But we can replace them. So beliefs reconsidered, okay? Being older does not mean you will get the virus, okay? There's some advantages to being older. Number one, you can say, I forgot, and you believe me. I'm in, I just reached 73, and I'm enjoying it, okay? Tuesday shopping gets me a 5% discount. I'm offered a seat in a crowded room. No one's heard if I leave a boring party. My own spokenness is just called cute now, okay? And I can say no without hurting anyone. That's what I lock on to with being old, okay? Or people say, I feel useless because right now I'm unemployed. Well, there's no commutes. You notice that? You connect with your family and friends. You can travel. You can fine-tune your skills. You might even go back to school online. There's all sorts of different possibilities, which I'll be talking about at the very, very end. Okay? Okay. And you can also get in shape, which is great. Okay? Or you can start using the Internet and really start learning how how it works. Okay? Okay. So our breakthroughs so far, your brain believes that you tell it without question. Your feelings come from our beliefs. And number three, you can replace the way you think. Let's go back to Dr. Seligman. There's two beliefs that we have, pessimists and optimists. Pessimists say, life happens to me. This is the way it is, and I'm not going to do about it. I might as well accept it, and there you go. That's what's called the closed box system. And it really doesn't help you be very optimistic. Optimists, however, do three things. Now, I'll give you a story to illustrate. They, um, well, first of all, they can replace what they're thinking. They believe that. No matter what happens to them, they can say, you know what, I can place, I can change what I'm thinking about this. The best way to explain that is to give you a story. First of all, can we become more optimistic? Dr. Seligman says, absolutely. But not through mindless devices, but by replacing our beliefs with new beliefs. Let me give you an illustration. Crucial crucial to learned optimism is how you react when hard 
things happen. You can be optimistic even through what's happening here. So let me give an example of how optimists think when hard things happen. First of all, pessimists do three things when hard things are there. They globalize it. They say everything is bad. They also eternalize it. They say it will always be bad. And finally, they say, and it's all my fault. They have a tendency to blame themselves. Optimists do three things. They isolate, they temporalize, and they say, I can replace what I'm thinking. So let me give you an example. This is my wife, Mary. A number of years ago when I was teaching, she called me at work, and she never did that before. And have you ever picked up the phone? You know something's wrong. You just know something's wrong. And finally, I'm, when you get Mary around the phone, she talks, and she wasn't talking. Finally, I had to say, hi, what's going on? She said, I just walked out of the doctor's office. I have cancer. I need everybody home. So we all went home, our daughters and their husbands, and we, and we spent the day together talking, crying, laughing, drinking, talking, all the feelings that you go through when you deal with something like that. They all went home, and we talked in the wee hours of the morning. And here's what we did. We isolated the cancer. What do I mean? We said, here's the cancer with the mastectomy and the radiation and the corrective surgery and the chemotherapy and everything associated with that. Here it is, but, but, but. It's not the only thing in our lives. There are some things in our lives also that are just as wonderful. Like we live in Sonoma County. Like we've been married for 45 years. Like our daughters are married to men who love them even more than we do. So we made a decision. We are not going to allow this cancer to be an umbrella over the rest of our lives. Was it a one-time decision? Of course not. We had to make it many times. But here's the exciting thing, dear listener. When you do that and you lock onto it like the rock in the road, the brain rewires itself so that decision becomes a part of the way you think. The second thing we did is we temporalized it. We say, Mary will not always have cancer. How do we know that? We didn't know that. But that's what we decided to lock on to. This will not always be here. Number three, we also said we can replace what we are thinking. When Mary first got the cancer, she said, it's my fault. I should have eaten better. I should have run more. I should have exercised more. And that really wasn't kind of a negative thing. And I kept saying to her, honey, stuff happens. There's a better word for it, but I won't go into it. Stuff happens. There's nobody's fault. It's just there. Finally, she woke up in the middle of the night one night about three days after, and she said, it's not my fault. I said, no, honey, it really isn't. It really isn't. It really isn't. A year later, she was cancer-free. The year after that, the year after that, then year four, she called me in the same way, but this time it was different. This time she spoke to me. And she said, hi, I just walked out of the doctor's office. They found something. I said, oh, my gosh. How are you doing? She said, you know what, Steve? I'm doing fine. How? I made it through last time. I can make it through this time. 
What happened, dear listeners? Not the cancer. It's what she said about the cancer. It isn't the new normal that's affecting your feelings. It's what you are saying about the new normal. And you can change and replace what you're saying. And when you do, what does your brain say? Okay. Is it true? Don't care. But you lock on to it. And those new messages become a part of your mindset. And then they become a part of who you are. Wow. 2019 was an amazing year for me. At the beginning, I discovered I had cancer, cataracts, and diabetes. At the end of the year, I discovered I had advanced heart disease. But you know what? For the cancer, they simply excite the little part of my scalp up there, and I'm cancer-free. For the cataracts, they replaced my lenses, and now I've got my glasses here. But I don't really need them because I can see you just as well. The diabetes, I had to completely switch my lifestyle and I've lost 30 pounds. And for the advanced heart disease, I had open heart surgery at the beginning of this year and I'm walking great. Here's the point though. My feelings did not come from the cancer or the cataracts, dear listener. They came from what I said to myself about the cancer and the cataracts. And that's what you can learn how to do. So let's teach you how to do that next. It's what I call making it mine. Let's begin to close up a little bit. If I stopped here and said, thank you so much for having me, I really appreciate that. You would probably say, oh, he was really good. You should have heard him. He was um, uh, very knowledgeable and uh, very handsome. And I like what he said. He was funny. What did he say? Oh, I have no idea. It was something about the brain. Here's the reason. Because right now, everything that I said is on the left side of your brain. It's knowledge. It's sort of psychological gobbledygook. And the brain doesn't know what to do with it. What I want to do for the next few minutes, and then we'll talk about questions, is I want to take what's on the left side to the right side. Why? Because we want to get into your feelings. You see, we're not thinking people who feel, we're feeling people who think. So let's do that now. I'm going to give you two new ways of thinking. Three is really too many to remember. So I want to give you two new ways of thinking about the new normal that will really, really help you. The first way is from Stanford University back in 1975 called The Effort Effect. What they discovered is that most of us pass over our successes too quickly and too lightly for them to ever become a part of our self-images. So when you say, or when someone says to you, good job, I'm really proud of you, often we say, oh, really, not really. I mean, I was part of a team. I could have done better. Um, Thank you very much, but um, that wasn't really all me. Uh, That's egotistical. Uh, no, thank you, but thank you, but not real, no, well, no, 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 okay. What have you learned together today? Your brain believes what you tell it. So when you someone compliments and you say, oh, really, no, 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 what your brain's going to say? Oh, okay, you're right. 
And the sad thing with that is that those compliments fall to the floor, which is not only sad, but what a waste. So here's your new way of thinking to help you with the new normal. When someone says, good job, you look at them and you smile and you say, thanks, I know. Now I can hear you laughing. I shared this with 300 Kaiser physicians years ago in Southern California in a ballroom and they just broke up and howled. But they loved me. They loved me. They bought my book. They signed up for my online seminar. They just absolutely loved me. When I was driving back to the airport in L.A., I was so excited, I almost drove off the freeway. So I stopped by a Chevron, got a tuna sandwich and Coke, and I was eating while they were gassing my car up. And I was by myself, so nobody saw me do this. And I looked up at the passenger mirror. I looked up at myself at the passenger mirror, and I said, You are the most amazing speaker. And what did my brain say? Okay. Is it true? Don't care. All I care is what you tell me. Now, here is something that's even more exciting. When I said you are an amazing speaker, not my brain not only agreed, but it also said, ready? I'll say it slowly. And Steve. You could even be better. It opened up the gate. And I began thinking of all sorts of ways I could be a better speaker. I'll do this and that and this and that. And the whole time the brain's saying, yeah, 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 this is getting really exciting. Now, if I had said to myself, you know what? You messed up here. You messed up there. You messed up here, which I did. What would have happened to the gate, everyone? <laughs> Slam shot. So here's your new way of thinking. From now on. When someone says, good job, you look at them and you smile and say, you know what? Thank you for telling me that. That makes me feel really nice. And then what you do is you wallow in your success like a pig in slop. And I have a question for you. Why do we have to wait for someone to tell us how amazing we are? We are all amazing. All we have to do is say it, and the brain believes it. Wow. Now, the best for last, what I call throw away the list. What's the list? Well, the list is is what we get out when we make all those bonehead mistakes, and we say to myself, oh, my gosh, how could I have been so stupid? Unfortunately, when you ask that question, your brain immediately pops up and says, oh, I know. Remember that dumb thing you did yesterday? The dumb thing you did a week ago, a month ago, a year ago? Remember how you were the slowest reader in the third grade? And you know what we do is we got this list, and we start going down the list of all the dumb things we've ever done. Now, this is really important to understand. When you do that, your brain doesn't know that those memories happened a week ago, a month ago, a year ago. The brain's recording them again. But this time as if you're happening when? Right now. And then you're carrying that around. Here's what I have to tell you tonight. And I get kind of teary-eyed when I say this. My dear listener, you don't have to do that anymore. Starting when? 
right now. And what do you do instead? You use three wonderful words. You know what the words are? The next time. The next time I'll do it this way. The next time I'll do it that way. And when you say that, the brain says what? Oh, okay. And when you say the next time, you're saying three things. Number one, you're saying there is a next time. How many next times do we get? As many as we want. Billions and gazillions. Isn't that wonderful? You have as many next times as you want. Number two, when you say the next time, you're saying, I will never, ever, ever give up. Ever. And the best for last. Number three, when you say the next time, you're saying, you know what? I'm still learning. I'm still growing. I'm still changing. Especially in this new normal. And I'm still making mistakes. But just because I fail doesn't mean I'm a failure. Thomas Edison was asked how it felt to fail 999 times looking for the film of a light bulb. He said, I did not fail 999 times. I simply found 999 ways that didn't work. And that's what we're doing. We're not failing. We're finding ways that don't work. Wow. One last story, and then we'll open it up for questions. I was on my way to work where I was working. I was waiting for the light to change to get on 101. And a kid came up to me in a very, very fancy car. I looked at my little Toyota. I looked at him, and I knew what was going to happen. And the light changed. He went peeling out in front of me, roaring up 101 as fast as he could, passing everyone. And as I watched him do this, I had this epiphany. How many cars are already in front of him? Millions. So maybe it's not a matter of how fast you get there. Maybe it's a matter of you're going in the right direction. But you know what? Even when you go in the right direction, sometimes you just run out of gas. Sometimes you get a flat tire. Sometimes you even lose your way. But you know what? We can buy some more gas. We can replace the tire. You can get a map. And what's so wonderful of the brain? The brain just says, oh, okay. Is it true? Don't care. All I care is what you tell me. You say it, I believe it. You lock on to it, you know what I will do? I will do everything I can to make it true in your life. Now, what do you do with the new normal? What can we do? Number one, call a friend. Talk to someone. Did you know that AT&T just reported that calls are have increased by 30% and the time that people are spending on the telephone has also increased by 30%? Call someone. If you want to call me, call me. I'll leave my number with you. Number two, ask Google. I typed in how to cope with the new normal. There were 304 million hits. So if you want some advice, go to that. Just Google it, okay? And then mainly, and this is the the message that I'm giving to you tonight, 
is choose, and it's a choice we make, choose to replace your negative self-talk. But what's so exciting is when you keep choosing to do that, your brain rewires itself so that your positive self-talk takes over. Now, I have a couple of things that I want to give to help you, okay? First of all, you can contact me. That's my email address. If you want a copy of this presentation, there's my email address. I'll just keep this up for a second. Write it down and just send me and say, please send me your presentation, and I'll send it right out to you. I have to write it up, (coughs) so I probably won't get it to you until tomorrow, okay? If you want to contact me and call me over the phone, do that. That's my number, 707-480-5007. Just like you, I am inside my house, and so I have all this time, and I would love, love to talk to you and just share what you're going through, and I'll share with you what I'm going through. Okay? So there's the thing. So call or email me and ask for that. There's my email address again. I also have a book on Amazon, Making Your Mind Magnificent. And you can go to Amazon and um, order that. And finally, and most important, I have an all-day seminar, which I gave in Santa Clara at the Embassy Suites, and it's now a virtual. It's on Teachable. It's a virtual seminar of nine different lessons, and you can sign up for that. If you want more information on that, uh, email me, and I'll send you information about that. Again, contact me at these places, and I'd love to talk to you. Questions? And we'll go back to Denise. Hello. Fascinating as always. Thank you. We have lots of questions. Um, Let's start with this one. How do I deal with my feelings when someone I love has died? That's a hard one because when someone has died, so much of your brain has been taken over. Your feelings, the sense of aloneness, the sense of anger, the sense of denial, the first thing that I would do is talk to someone. Surround yourself by people that you love. Do that first. And then deal with all the others. And there's so many different wonderful sites that help you deal with the deaths and with, with people that you love. And that will be at the end of my um, handout that I'll be sending out. Um, how do I stay optimistic? when I have to stay inside for so long and don't know when this is going to end. Okay. This is where realizing that our feelings are coming, not from staying inside. They're coming from what we are saying about staying inside. They're coming from our beliefs. And there's all sorts of wonderful ways <laughs> to look at the, the, the positive part of being isolated. So go to Google and they just say positive parts of, being isolated, and there's gobs and gobs of websites that that give you different ways of thinking, different ways that you can replace what you're thinking with with the ways they suggest. How about, can you give me an example of how our brain believes? I think the most amazing example I heard was from Dr. Ramachandran's book, Phantoms in the Brain. A woman walked into a doctor's office back in the Great Recession, Great Work Depression, back in 1932, we know this actually happened because we have the medical charts. 
Um, she was very pregnant, very excited, sat down with the doctor. Could you give me an exam? My, my husband went out of work. I think I'm going to deliver today. The doctor said, absolutely. And he did. And everything was normal except for a couple of little hiccups. He couldn't find um, her belly button was still in any, not an Audi. And he couldn't find the fetal heartbeat. In fact, she wasn't pregnant at all. She had a condition called pseudosciasis, which doesn't happen too much here in America. But in some third world countries, it does. Uh, it's false pregnancies. So what does he say? Well, I don't agree with what he did, but um, he said to her, you're right, I can deliver today. I can deliver you right here. So it got all nice and comfortable with warm blankets and fell. She, in fact, she fell asleep a little bit. And when she woke up, he was right there with her. And he said, I'm so sorry, but we lost the baby. And we did everything we could. The medical records, <coughs> pardon me, the medical records indicate that as soon as he said that, her tummy began going down. But she bounced into his office <coughs> a week later, just as big as before, and she announced, Doctor, you forgot to deliver my twin. The brain believes everything. So when you say to yourself, This is really hard, I can't make it through this, what's your brain gonna say, Denise? Okay, you're right, you can't. And then you know what it does? It finds ways to make it hard. But when you say, I'm stronger than this, I've been through worse before, and I can do amazing things here during this time, what does your brain say to that? Okay. But then it looks for ways to make you strong. It looks for ways and things that you can do to not only get through this, but to thrive and flourish in it. Wow. It's all in the way you think. How about here? I get depressed staying inside. Yes. I have a little very simplistic illustration. Picture a circle with arrows going in and picture a circle with arrows going out. The circle with arrows going in is where everything is concentrated on you and that's where depression comes from. And that's where isolation can be so dangerous because you're only thinking about yourself because that's all you have. The key to getting out of that depression, and again, I'm not a psychologist, so there might be something more, but the basics of it is is to get out and talk to people and get active and get on the Internet. I love sending notes. I love sending notes because people love receiving notes from me, just little note cards, and it gets your mind off yourself. The key that you want to do is to get your mind off yourself, unless there's something more dangerous, and I'm not a psychologist, so I can't get into that. But basically, you want your arrows going out to other people. So we have time for one last question. What are some things I can do with my family when we are getting on each other's nerves? <laughs> Go to Google and just ask, activities for family during this isolation and you will find hits everywhere so i mean they're right there and they have some amazing amazing games and amazing amazing things that you could do so they're right there just go to google and ask that question and they've got amazing things you can do thank you thank you you're welcome Stephen campbell for your comments here today and your fascinating program we also like to thank our listening audience please visit commonwealthclub.org for upcoming events and ways that you can support our programming. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California commemorating its 117th year of enlightened discussion 
adjourned. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.